Some folks don't stop till they find the truth. June's Journey is a roaring 20s murder mystery hidden object game. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android or iOS devices and on PC through Facebook games. Burning down their villages, killing their livestock, raping women. I mean, these are, these are war crimes that the Burmese army has committed here. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Ben Pauger, executive editor for The Web, and you're listening to The ER. I'm in Washington today, and joining me in the studio are Derek Mitchell, Simon Billiness, and Martin de Bormont. Derek Mitchell served as the U.S. ambassador to the Republic of the Union of Myanmar from 2012 to 2016, after serving as the State Department's first special representative and policy coordinator for Burma. He is currently senior advisor to the Asia program at the U.S. Institute of Peace and senior advisor at the Albright-Stonebridge Group. Simon Billiness serves as the executive director for the International Campaign for Burma, an organization working to build an alliance to establish peace, security, and stability for the Rohingya people wherever they reside. As part of the Free Burma movement, he organized shareholder activism and developed laws to put pressure on corporations to withdraw their financial interests in the country. Martin de Bourmont is an editorial fellow at Foreign Policy. He previously worked as a reporter for the Phnom Penh Post in Cambodia and as a reporting intern for the New York Times in Paris. ER nerds, we love hearing from you. If you've got episode ideas or comments, email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. So we're here to talk today about the country of Myanmar, which has gone through a remarkable transition over the past few years, coming out of a military junta embracing democracy of a sort, of an imperfect sort, but is now beset in international news by a humanitarian crisis uh, involving the Rohingya people, a Muslim minority group that reside in the Rakhine state in the country's northwest, uh, who have been forced to flee in massive numbers. Reports are now about 600,000 who have been forced to flee by military activity into Bangladesh. Ambassador Mitchell, can you give us uh, and our listeners a little bit of a, a rundown on what the latest situation is? It's tragic. I mean, there's, there's no way around it. And I think people see the pictures and they hear the voices of hundreds of thousands of, of innocent people who have been voluntarily, involuntarily, but uh, coerced, however, uh, move across the border of northern Rakhine State, which is actually in the west part of the country, uh, into Bangladesh in absolute horrific conditions and squalor. Uh, they have been oppressed for, for decades. Uh, they lost their citizenship in the 80s. Um, they are viewed as a threat to the country. They are not viewed as, the, as part of the natural fabric of the country by a majority of people in Myanmar. So they have been called one of the uniquely disadvantaged people of the world. Um, and it's something I worked on uh, for many, many hours in talking to Rakhine, Rohingya, and the government to try to address the very deep divide that exists uh, and the deep antagonism towards these people. But we're seeing now, I think, the culmination of a tragedy that was in the works for many years. Simon, uh, you have worked on behalf as, as an activist and an advocate uh, for the Rohingya. As, as the ambassador said, it is a, clearly a humanitarian catastrophe. To what extent can we, can listeners put the blame on the military for, the Burmese military for these actions? Well, I think, you know, what's very clear about this is this isn't a, a man-made humanitarian crisis. This isn't due to some natural disaster. This is due to the Burmese army forcibly pushing uh, Rohingya out of the country by burning down their villages, uh, killing their livestock, 
raping women. I mean, these are these are war crimes that the uh, the Burmese army has committed here. And the question really is uh, for us is what can we do? What can the U.S. government do? What can ordinary individuals do to put enough pressure on the Burmese army that they stop this ethnic cleansing and they don't go further down this road to genocide? But this has been a problem that has been in the works for a long time. Tensions between the Buddhist majority and the Muslim minority flared in 2014. There was a a campaign by a Buddhist monk to inflame tensions that resulted in sporadic but extreme violence. So this has been brewing for a while. I mean, the, the... Rohingya minority have been in internally displaced camps in squalid conditions, deprived of adequate food, of health care. So it has been percolating for a while. But it all kicked off, I guess, this latest about the most intense violence and the extraordinary displacement kicked off in August. Can you tell us a little bit about the raid by this separatist Islamist group called ARSA? Right. The Arakan Rohingya Salvation Army, they call themselves. And they used to be called the Haraka Al-Yakin. They have various names. This group actually has connections to um, individuals in Pakistan and Saudi funds. Uh, so there are, are concerns that it is connected to some nefarious actors internationally. It's very important to remember that that's what kicked this latest round of, of violence <clears throat> and abuse. These were attacks on government on, outposts. Yes, on border on border police and, and uh, parts of basically the military and the police. And the result was this massive overreaction and, and counterattack because it fed the narrative that the Rohingya were, again, they were alien, that they are the vanguard of some terrorist, international terrorist movement. There is this fear, this inchoate fear that Islam is going to overtake Myanmar, which Demographically, if you look at it objectively, it's absurd. They're about 5% of the population. But the narrative has been been playing out inside the country for many years. And they look at Indonesia. It never was uh, Muslim. That's Muslim. Afghanistan was Buddhist for a time. That's Muslim. So they feel they are in in the crosshairs. So uh, when there was an attack in the name of the Rohingya, this was viewed as, aha, see, this is the agenda. This is what they're seeking, separatism, etc. And then this counterattack that just went beyond uh, any kind of proportionality that hit all kinds of innocent people. So that, that kind of um, overreaction has, uh, has led to many people inside the country supporting the military. And it makes it very difficult for even Aung San Suu Kyi to speak up for this population and therefore creates, I think, a greater and greater divide between the international understanding of the issue and the domestic understanding of the issue. I think, you know, um, I think Ambassador, as Mitchell has you know, described very well, that there is, uh, you know, tremendous uh, prejudice against Muslims and against the Rohingya in Burma. That's very widely felt uh, among the uh, majority Burmans, majority Buddhist population. But I think that this is a situation where, um, where you know, this attack on, on the uh, Burmese security forces gave the Burmese army carte blanche to do what they've always wanted to do. And they launched this uh, attacks on civilians, attacks on villages, uh, disproportionate response to, to, to what occurred. Um, and I think that this needs to be seen in the context of how the Burmese army has used and manipulated and stoked and encouraged uh, prejudice against the Rohingya and prejudice of the Muslims. For instance, Warathu, who's the leader of this ultra-nationalist uh, group that's sort of taken on, you know, taken on the robes of Buddhism 
but it's really an ultra-nationalist group. It's a group that's been, you know, created and fostered by the Burmese army. Um, this is not a you know, spontaneous group. Um, this is, you know, uh, a sort of a reservoir of prejudice which the army has used to gain some semblance of popular support and to, you know, put Aung San Suu Kyi and the democratic half of the government on its back foot politically. So this really has been um, an offensive against the Rohingya, which has served the Burmese army's political interests. Martin, it seems like, you know, the plight of the Rohingya in this, this humanitarian crisis is, is now finally, after many years, really hitting the front pages of newspapers. And the U.S. government is starting to take account of this. Uh, Secretary of State Tillerson spoke out in uh, on October 18th about it, and there have been some some senators who have raised this in the Foreign Relations Committee. Can you talk a little bit about what these what these moves are and what the distinctions might be? Right. Well, uh, right now it's it's really a question of uh, tone and terminology. Uh, so up until now, Tillerson has refrained from applying language that would uh, suggest ethnic cleansing or genocide. What these senators are calling for is more of recognition of the true uh, scale of the crimes. So, for example, Senator Cardin has spoken about genocide. The problem with uh, genocide is that it's rarely invoked because that would actually require action. Senator Markey has also called for placing a senior general on the uh, SDN list, which would lead perhaps to freezing their assets or curtailing their travel. So right now, that is kind of the, the debate that's going on is is whether we, we continue to use these softer terms or we start to talk about this in a manner that would actually prompt action. Derek, if you'll let me, I want to step back in time a little bit to your, your, your period as ambassador. There has been some criticism that the U.S. government under the Obama administration and particularly Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and the president himself moved a bit too quickly to help accelerate the opening of Myanmar from the Tamadatha military junta. Walk us through your conversations and the experience there. Uh, I do hear that that argument that we moved too quickly. I, I completely reject that. I think the, the discussion and the movements were very, very carefully calibrated according to what was happening on the ground. At first, we had what we called an action for action period in 2011, 2012, where uh, when I was envoy, we tested the new government. They said they were reform-minded. They, they favored democracy, human rights, peace, development, all of that. And we said, well, those are good words, but when you take action, we will take action ourselves to ease up on the sanctions and the pressure uh, as, we, as they demonstrate uh, sincerity. They started to do that. They, you have to recognize today's Myanmar, today's Burma is very different than it was five years ago. It's not close to being a full-on democracy or full free society, but civil society is quite active. There is a media that maybe uh, you know is very, quite free, um, though they self-censor on some issues. Aung San Suu Kyi has won an election. She's leading the country, at least part of the country. The military still has power. The, the parliament is controlled by the NLD. I mean, a lot has really fundamentally changed. And I think it's because we got in and we helped uh, invest in the change and give uh, the previous government an incentive to have an election. They did. It was a credible election, and Aung San Suu Kyi is the leader. Then it became a new moment, which was now she is the head of a, of a, a democratic government or a democratic government in transition. She needs to deliver. Democracy needs to deliver. So I think what the administration did, and I had left by that time, was determine what do we have in place that is getting in the way of her being able to deliver. 
we I think they felt the sanctions, the business sanctions, the investment sanctions, um, were in the way. So they wanted to get rid of that to help her deliver investment jobs and all the rest that would allow democracy to to continue on and she would be empowered. There was at no point a sense of mission accomplished. There was no banner suggesting that we were that this was a reward for good action. It was a thoughtful, forward-looking approach that tried to invest in success and continue to contribute to reform that we knew was still a work in progress. Always a risk. You never know where things are moving. It's up to the government, up to the people there to figure out where it moves. But we always knew Rakhine State was going to be difficult. We always knew the military still had control under the Constitution of many levers of power. But holding back, you know, sending signals that folks should not invest or businesses should not move in, which the sanctions basically did, was not going to help Aung San Suu Kyi's government deliver and thereby take it the next step to, uh, in this democratic process. Simon, so much hope, you know, in the international community has been placed in the person of Aung San Suu Kyi, who for more than 15 years was under house arrest. Her political party was denied. It was underground. And I think that hope still vests in her that she will be a moral authority speaking out for the Rohingya. She has really declined to do so. Why is that the case? And why is it so difficult for her to speak up for what seems like an, an obvious cause? Well, I think that, first of all, I think it's, I'd just like to respond a little bit to uh, what Ambassador Mitchell said. I would agree that that some of the sanctions that the U.S. imposed on Burma, you know, clearly got in the way of foreign investment in Burma, such as the ban on new investment and the, uh, the import ban. But what was also taken away were sanctions that are aimed directly at the Burmese military and military-owned businesses, you know, sanctions that um, were levied on business cronies of the military, you know, often who had, you know, past ties or past family ties with the drug trade. So the the taking away completely of sanctions uh, last year, it was too sweeping. This was in September 2016? In 2016. It was, it was too sweeping. And, and I think it really sent a signal to the Burmese military that the pressure was off them. It gave them. It made them think they had, they had more space to act and to uh, you know get away with uh, uh, this kind of bad behavior. Again, I would take issue. I, the individual sanctions, so-called blacklist on both uh, military entities and so-called cronies, it was in the way of investment. Practically, it created uh, concern in the international business community that as long as there were sanctions in place, uh, any type of sanctions, then they had to do extra. Um, they had an extra difficult time in evaluating where to invest. It made it much more difficult for them to move in. They just weren't going to do it because the so-called cronies were involved in most every part of the economy. Um, now, the military businesses, I, again, I wasn't part of the discussion on that. My understanding uh, was if you get rid of the blacklist, you get rid of the blacklist. You have to get rid of the entire authority for the blacklist, which is called IEPA. And that affected military businesses the same way. Whether they could have kept those in place, I'm agnostic. Maybe, I mean, maybe that would have been good in theory. I, my understanding was you had to get rid of all of it all at once in order to send the right signal to international business that would then make them look again at the country. So whether it's directly addressing business or indirectly affecting their calculations, it was in the way of, of the type of um, investment that she needed. Again, I, this is where I disagree with the ambassador. The, the right signal to, uh, 
to, to business, whether it's U.S. business or other foreign investors, would be to uh, invest in Burma, but don't do business with military-owned companies. Don't do business with cronies of the military. You know, the, the companies that are invested in Burma right now, since the sanctions were lifted, they're doing due diligence to try to prevent doing business with military-owned companies because they know uh, the business reputation risk of doing business with these military companies. You do need to make sure that the U.S. government is not giving a clean bill of health to the Burmese military and these military-owned companies. And that does not get in the way of foreign investment by responsible companies. But it, but it did. I mean, responsible companies, as Simon suggested, they did. There is reputational risk. Sure. So they're very concerned about. They're still doing due diligence. But the signal is go and invest, but be careful and, and you know, who you work with. The cronies, I mean, the, even the military businesses were looking to become more internationally minded and more reform minded. They can be helped in that regard. There's, a, there's an argument to be, to be made as to whether that's worth doing or not. The cronies are not military cronies. These are folks who did business with the previous regime. But many of them are also trying to uh, find ways to be more in, in keeping with international standards. Um, and look, they just are all over the economy. So if you sanction them, you can invest in the country. And, the, and many, many companies were simply not moving in because of that. I think that's an important point. I, I've been to Myanmar twice over the past four years, and the pace of change is remarkable. Shopping malls, cell phones, I mean, all the concomitant things that you see, a developing economy. You know, Yangon feels like a gold rush town. But it is true that these, you know, old elements of the old regime, whether military or military tied, enrich themselves to extraordinary degree. And I imagine it is very difficult to do business here without having to negotiate some of those. So, Martin, what is the what is the likelihood that the U.S. government will put new sanctions on a select list of Myanmar's officials? It seems to me rather unclear what the likelihood is at the moment. It seems like the government at the moment is reticent to go ahead and talk about talk of genocide, talk about ethnic cleansing. On the other hand, it is perhaps a little bit baffling since uh, the Trump administration does have a certain enthusiasm for revoking Obama-era policies in terms of the optics of revoking this one, you know, levying sanctions. Uh, I'm sure it could probably do them some good, especially in this period. In any case, I think uh, we'll just have to stay tuned to see where exactly this goes. All right, so I'm not going to let the Aung San Suu Kyi issue slip here. Simon, I'm going to come back to you. Why is it that she's been so reluctant to speak out for the Rohingya? Well, she's very politically constrained and she's very constitutionally constrained. You know, I mean, I think, I think that Ambassador Mitchell oversold the changes that we've seen in Burma. I think what needs to be understood that Burma's operating under a constitution that was written by the military. And it contains a number of key provisions that entrench military power. For instance, the head of the army appoints the defense minister, border control minister, home affairs minister. So the army is completely exempt from civilian control and oversight. 25% of the seats in parliament are appointed by the military. And in order to change the constitution, you need the votes of 75% plus one of legislators to change the constitution. So having those military legislators there is an effective block on any changes to the constitution. And also in the constitution is a provision that allows the head of the army to 
dissolve parliament and dissolve the government by declaring a national emergency. It's basically a constitutional coup provision. And so Aung San Suu Kyi and the, the, the civilian part of the government, you know, has that constitutional sort of Damocles hanging over them. And that's a big constraint uh, on her power. Well, I, I absolutely don't disagree with that. And as I say, this is a democratic transition in process. The NLD, though, has invested in that change. They decided to run in the election. There are you know, tremendous social changes from five years ago, but it's not certainly sufficient to say that this is done. The question is, what is the best way of uh, incentivizing continued change? How do you assist this continued process of reform? The military did have a constitution where they felt comfortable enough to transfer power to Dotsu to some degree because they knew they had certain powers retained. How do you help her demonstrate that she can deliver and therefore, the military has less of a reason, a rationale, to feel like they have to have control in the country. This is a work in progress. There are no easy answers. And yet she has called the, the reported atrocities committed against the Rohingya fake news. Her information committee has come out with propaganda stories uh, linking UNICEF and other UN aid agencies to the Arkhine, to the Islamist rebel group that have inflamed the problem even more that have, that have given, you know, kindling to the masses who, as you rightly said, aren't particularly fond of this Rohingya minority. And I think, you know, it's important to also consider where Aung San Suu Kyi does have power. She is the foreign minister. So when Burmese representatives speak at the United Nations and when they call on Russia and China to uh, defend Burma and uh, prevent any UN Security Council sanctions. That is, that is Aung San Suu Kyi and her government that's calling on Russia and China to do that. And when you know, her representatives speak at the United Nations and deny the atrocities that have occurred in Rakhine State, that's on her and, and should be on her because that's where she does have power. That's very true. Her, her voice is what she has. And what she has is her stature and her leadership. This is the advantage she has over the military, fundamentally, is she has the real support of the people. We knew it before because of large crowds. We knew it because of the 1990 election. But we, it was reaffirmed in the 2015 election that she has the support of a vast cross-section of this country. She needs to use that and lead in the direction that the, she feels the country needs to go in. Yes, I agree. She's under enormous constraints, enormous headwinds. But she can use her voice and she must lead if they're going to get out of this situation. To what extent does the U.S. have leverage under the Trump administration to push her in the right direction? I guess there's a question of willingness. Do they want to wade into this? But the U.S. was enormously, under the Obama administration, enormously powerful or a, a real catalyst in opening up Myanmar. I think it is arguable that the U.S. doesn't have that same international leverage. It's hard to you know, put the genie back in the bottle. China's influence, which Myanmar had wanted to turn away from back in you know, 2013, 2014, they have seemingly gone back to China, both in economic deals and in influence. Does the U.S. still have the power to rectify the situation? Well, I think it's probably understood that Burma still wants to keep that distance from China. Burma's not comfortable with being politically and economically uh, dominated by China. And that's one of the key reasons why, you know, they made this overture to the West. I mean, this is what Burma traditionally does as a small power 
surrounded by larger powers. They play the larger powers off against each other. To that extent, you know, the US as one of those larger powers still has considerable clout, particularly, you know, when we work with allies and where where we as the US take leadership. And, you know, I think in this case, it's very important for the US to exercise leadership because, you know, we, we've always said when faced with genocide and, and mass atrocities, we've always said never again. And yet we let this happen again and again. And I think it's very important for the US and the international community at this point when they say never again to actually mean it. And to actually mean it means putting effective sanctions and penalties on the Burmese army for having committed this largest act of ethnic cleansing we've seen in decades. Because if we don't, if the international community doesn't, then when we say never again to genocide, we clearly don't mean it. The issue, though, of, I mean, look, I'm, there may be punishments against the military that are needed. I don't dispute that. And there is a place for punishment in foreign policy and to demonstrate you can't have business as usual when there are clear atrocities and you know, crimes against humanity uh, being alleged. That said, that's not going to solve an issue. I mean, the solution is not simply throw sanctions on and then suddenly things will get better. This is, as, as we stated up front, a very deep-seated issue. You can't sanction away a mindset of racism or a sense these people don't belong. So we have to figure out something beyond uh, looking at an easy solution that makes us feel good in the near term, maybe necessary, but not close to being sufficient. So how do we engage in a thoughtful way? How do we talk about it? How do we demonstrate that we want this country to succeed? We even want the military to succeed in a credible security counterterrorism mission, but certainly not to succeed in any kind of human rights abuses and trying to protect, so-called protect the country. The fact is, nobody right now in this country, in that country, is, is winning. The Rakhine are not winning. The military is not winning. I mean, they're more insecure than they've ever been and try to convince them that pushing a million people over the border, a porous border, is not going to help you with a terrorism problem that can easily cross that border. So we need to work with them. Even if we need to punish in certain ways, we need to think much more broadly and creatively if we're going to get at this issue from a human rights perspective as well as a national security issue and a regional security issue. I want to wrap up. You know, we've talked high politics and some of the points of leverage here, both in the U.S. and the international community. But I want to come back to the 600,000 people, this sort of this persecuted community that has been pushed across the border into Bangladesh. What is the current state of their lives and livelihoods? What can be done? Which aid groups are working with them on the ground? And is there any hope of resolution for them to be come back across the border into Myanmar? We've seen the horrific pictures, the satellite images of burning villages. Where do, where do things go from here, Simon? You know, that's a really good question. And, you know, to a large extent, I don't really know. I don't really know where we go from here. Um, you know, the, the Burmese army has created a, an almost intractable problem. I think that one thing that, you know, I think it's important to get across is, you know, people are talking right now, oh, you know, let's, let's send the Rohingya back to Burma, or let's resettle the Rohingya in Bangladesh or in other countries. And in all of these discussions, no one seems to have actually asked the Rohingya where they want to live now. And I think that should really be the focus of where we go from here, particularly with the, not just the, the most recent, you know, almost 600,000 refugees that we've seen in Bangladesh right now, but the other 500,000 who've been in Bangladesh since the 90s. First of all, we need to focus on humanitarian relief, 
you know, make sure there's food, water, shelter, jobs, livelihood. But moving forward, I think what, what needs to be done here is um, engage the Rohingya themselves and find out where they want to live, where they want to go. I don't think the Rohingya should be, uh, you know, forced back to Burma when it's quite clear that they're at extreme risk there. But obviously, you know, it's hard for them to live in Bangladesh without any real infrastructure. So yeah, it's a really, it's a really almost intractable problem. But I think we need to focus on what the Rohingya want first as a way of finding a long-term solution to this. I mean, the, the fact is the Rohingya are abused everywhere they are, whether it's Saudi or Pakistan, or it has sort of echoes of the Palestinian issue where it becomes a cause celeb, but maybe it's being used. They're being used for another other agendas because no country around there seems to accept or want to take them in. I mean, they may make their decision on their own of what, where they want to go. We're hitting the dry season. The nice season is winter out in Myanmar. And in the past, they've gotten on boats and try to get away from their situation. There are traffickers led by Rohingya on the ground um, who traffic people and get them out. So There are th- few countries willing to accept them, however. There are very few. I mean, the pa- Malaysia has had some as laborers. Thailand's abused them, and there have been you know, mass graves. We had this issue oh, May of 2014, I think it was, where it made the headlines of them on getting in boats and moving. They're a tragic population. We need to figure out something uh, to help them. I mean, we have the Anand Commission. Kofi Annan came out with a whole series of moves, political moves, that Aung San Suu Kyi's government has affirmed for them. They should have a citizenship process. They should have livelihoods. They should have education and health and security. So she has affirmed those commission recommendations. The question is implementation. And we can help her with that, but it does come down to what Simon said is the Rohingya are terrified for good reason and they're insecure. The question is what's best for them? Well, I think on that unfortunate note, we will leave it here. There's certainly going to be more to talk about. Hopefully we will see this humanitarian tragedy abate, but I fear that there is worse yet to come. Thank you to my guests, Simon Billinis, Derek Mitchell, Martin de Bormont. We appreciate having you on. Thank you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm Ben Pauker, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Katie Gardner and Brandon Martini. For more information about FP and to subscribe to the ER and our Global Thinkers and Backstory podcasts, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for joining us.